Welcome to The Weather Pod, the podcast about the growing importance of weather information to business and society. I'm Alan Thorpe. I'm a former Director General of the European Centre for Medium Range Weather Forecasts, a former head of the UK Met Office's Hadley Centre, and a Professor of Meteorology. And I'm David Rogers. I'm a former Chief Executive of the UK Met Office and am now a consultant with the World Bank, helping countries improve their weather-related disaster management systems and services. Weather information is a critical international resource for saving lives, making business and society more efficient, and building resilience to extreme weather and climate change. In each episode, we invite a leading expert to discuss how public, private and academic sectors work together to produce weather information and make it available to business and society. We also investigate how weather-affected public and private enterprises actually use it and the new business opportunities being created. And because extreme weather often impacts the poorest the hardest, we'll look beyond the rich countries to the less developed ones, which host most of the world's population. This episode of the WeatherPod has been produced in collaboration with the Young Earth System Scientist Group. And today we welcome Dr Nina Ridder of the Climate Change Research Centre of the University of New South Wales, Sydney, and Dr Faith Taylor of the Department of Geography, King's College, London. Nina and Faith, a very warm welcome to the WeatherPod. Yes, welcome to you both. Thank you. It's great to be here. Yes, thanks for inviting us. We know worldwide and increasingly people are moving to and living in cities. Uh, We know that urban areas can be significantly affected by the impacts of weather, including but not exclusively extreme weather, and of course the impacts of climate change. Frequently such impacts involve a cascade of hazards, where for example flooding can cause power outages, gridlock and health risks amongst other things. Nina, can we start by considering what are the main high-impact compound weather events urban citizens are likely to face now and in the coming decades? So from a compound event point of view, um, we first need to understand what is driving events and what causes the impact that we're seeing. So you mentioned the recent flooding in Europe. So, which was basically caused um, by a very slow-moving, low-pressure system that dumped a lot of rain in the same region. So this created a compound event by the slow-moving, low-pressure event. So it saturated the ground, it filled the catchments for rivers. So the additional rain that fell on top of this caused then the flooding. So the slow-moving low pressure system was actually forecasted. It was just a matter of understanding what this would cause. So the how these different things would interact. So what basically a forecast of the impact would be. So before we can actually say um, we need to improve our weather forecast, we have to understand first, okay, what are the factors that cause events? So we have to understand compound events before we can really say, okay, we need to improve our weather models to predict them. So in a, in a sense, you're saying that, um, you know, these compound events are are really very multidisciplinary in the sense they're liable to require meteorologists, hydrologists, um, geologists, um, a, a lot of different disciplines, and they're not always um, at the same, uh, they don't always have the same approach or necessarily even uh, are integrated together 
looking at the same problem. Is that would that be a fair summary? Exactly. So you have to bring together a lot of people from different backgrounds that have expertise in their fields that know how to talk to each other in order to actually understand the complex system that we're dealing with. So it's not as easy as saying we need to improve the weather forecast. Great, thanks. Faith, just building on that, what, what do you think are the likely impacts of, of these sort of compound events like higher temperatures and increased flooding within the urban environment? Yeah, and I'll particularly um, focus on the, the global south for my answer here, where we've got around um, one in 10 people living in slums or informal settlements, which are characterised often by quite poor infrastructure and, and building types um, and, and limited sort of availability of services. So in these, these informal settlements, so for example, in, in Nairobi, around 50 to 60% of the population are, are living in slums or informal settlements. We've got very high exposure to these hazards. So many people are living you know, in very close proximity to the river channels because there's, you know, there's, there's limited land to build on. Um, and for heat, people are living in, in a lot, generally metal buildings. And if you've ever tried to sleep in a, in a metal building in, in the tropics, you'll, you'll know just how hot they can get in extreme weather. Um, in these informal settlements also, you know, the, the, the population may have um, pre-existing health conditions um, and, and sort of lower capacity or limited education. So that may um, affect the, the outbreak of disease. So we know things like cholera occur both in extreme temperatures and flooding. Um, and then also we have fewer kind of adaptation options. So one thing I didn't really know until I started working in the global south was that a lot of these these structures in slums and informal settlements aren't owned by the people that live there but they're, they're rented and often they're owned by quite wealthy people um, so if you are paying a a kind of a monthly rent it limits your ability to actually change very much about the structure you live in so you know you could insulate your building or um, make it more waterproof but Particularly if you are if you're reliant on a daily income as well, that that really limits people's capacity to adapt. Um, and we can also think about some of the feedbacks from from these hazards. So, for example, in very extreme temperatures, people might drink more water, um, and they might be buying that water in bottles or bags. Then that, that then those those bottles or bags get discarded because there's no municipal waste collection, and then end up in the drainage channel, thus exacerbating flooding in the next extreme rainfall event. We've got lots of sort of unexpected feedbacks like that um, in in these informal settlements. Over the last uh, 12 months, we've had a number of examples of extreme rainfall events that have caused flash floods, river flooding, often beyond the experience of those impacted. The recent flooding in Europe is one example where the event was predicted, but the magnitude wasn't. This has led to an underestimate of the risk to lives and property. I'd like to explore how we can improve the situation from the perspective of the entire warning value chain, from forecasting at one end to the response at the other. And Faith, I'd like to ask you in particular about how we should, uh, what, what do we need to do to improve the preparedness and response to these kinds of events? Mm, yeah, it's, that's an interesting topic. And I mean, I can first talk about the, the records of past events that we might use to inform our, our modeling or our understanding of impact. And again, in, in the urban global south, um, where we've got 
very rapid growth and change. So these cities will double in size in the next 30 years or so. Um, we've got a rapidly kind of changing landscape in terms of what, what hazards may occur, but also often quite limited historical records. Um, so, for example, um, I've done some work in, in Malawi on, on earthquakes rather than floods. Um, and uh, you know, our instrumental records of, of earthquakes don't go back um, very far, maybe sort of 20 to 30 years. And after that point, going back in time, you have to rely on maybe archive methods. So looking in, in newspapers or, or reports or asking local people. Um, and you know, one thing we found is differences in language. So people say, oh, no, we don't experience earthquakes, but we do experience tremors. Um, so actually trying to reconstruct what is possible in terms of the, the, the frequency size distribution or the magnitude of these events is challenging. Then I think, you know, if we let's say we can do that and we, you know, we develop a model. Um, sometimes there is a limit, a, a gap between our knowledge and our capacity to act. So, for example, if we think about planning and urban planning in the UK, I think we have around 38 planners per 100,000 people, whereas in Africa, it's about one per 100,000. So that, that planner has got a lot more people and, and work that they, they are responsible for, which, which limits what they can do in terms of, of planning for these unexpected events. So Nina, from, from your perspective, looking at the sort of inputs into the value chain from a weather and climate perspective, what, what do you think can be done to improve these basic inputs? I think one thing that is very important is that we need to account more for compound events. So it's the flood that you mentioned in Europe is, can actually be considered as a compound event. So what we had was a very slow moving, low pressure system that dumped all its rain for a very long time. Um, in the same area, which meant that we saturated the soil, the ground, so the water couldn't go anywhere. And at the same time, you dumped even more rain on it. We haven't had a lot of events where this happened. So getting an idea of the magnitude of these events is actually quite hard because we don't have enough data to do this. So from a scientific point of view, so from the hazard point of view, we need to gather way more data and explore way more the interconnections between different hazards before we can actually predict these events a lot better. Faith, um, I was really interested in, earlier you were talking quite a bit about the situation in the global south in terms of uh, urban concentrations and, and compound uh, hazards, which you know, it, it occurred to me that there's a very, in principle, different situation uh, of dealing with this in the developing countries as opposed to the developed world. I wonder if you could say a little bit more about those differences between between the two. Yeah, so just to, to reiterate, um, across the global south, and particularly in sub-Saharan Africa, we've got very high population growth rates, around 3% per annum. So that's a doubling in size of your population in the next 20 to 30 years. Um, and a high proportion of people living in, in slums or informal settlements or low-income neighbourhoods. So one in 10 people globally are living in slums or informal settlements. Um, so we've got this real accumulation of an urban poor population so you know historically we would think about urbanization being um, related to development you know, the streets are paved with gold in the city but actually we're, we're getting this accumulation of, of um, the urban poor 
Um, and and the urban poor, the, the context of the urban poor is quite different to, to sort of uh, rural low income households. We've got very high density of buildings, often um, in locations that are highly exposed to a range of hazards. So very common to live in river channels or on steep slopes. Um, and and then, as I mentioned before, limited capacity to act in terms of, of how we manage these hazards, um, particularly in small towns and cities where there's, there's real growth. So not just the mega cities, but towns with less than 100,000 people. There's a proportionally a much lower revenue base in these towns and cities to actually act. Um, so we've got these factors plus a in terms of the population, um, quite high costs of living in informal settlements. So if you're buying your water from, from a vendor rather than having it piped, that might cost 10% more than, than a wealthy person in the same city and often pre-existing health conditions as a result of living in these informal settlements. You're listening to Weatherpod with Alan Thorpe and David Rogers. I'd like to um, consider now the, the role of climate science. What, what would you both consider to be the main scientific advances um, to, date, to date in, in this area? And, and also the challenges where there are gaps in our knowledge when it comes to understanding those events that have an impact on, a high impact on cities, especially with climate change. Uh, Nina, what's your view on this? So in my view, it's climate science has come a long way over the past decades. Uh, one of the main things that I think of is the advances and developments in global climate models. If we look at the development between climate models from the first assessment report by the Intergovernment Panel of Climate Change, compared to the last one, the sixth report, which was released just recently, it's quite impressive how far we've come and how far, how well these models can actually reproduce things that we see in the climate system. Um, having said that, there's um, two things that we still struggle with. So one thing, for example, are exactly these models. They're still quite um, uh, low resolution. So they um, look into like scales of a few hundred kilometers. So, but what we actually need to understand these kind of extreme events and for urban regions and areas are actually models that are able to um, recreate the climate and the weather on kilometer scales. So like five, maybe one kilometer would be even better. So what we need are projections on the urban scale, which at the moment is quite a challenge. Um, also, it's the whole communication between the climate scientists and the impact scientists and everything that comes after in the chain of going down to the actual impact that an event can have. Yeah, if I can pick up on that last part, so I'd like to ask Faith really about, you know, we've done a lot of work on increasingly as part, essentially a part of uh, our understanding of the climate and its impacts is looking at the social determinants of vulnerability and what do you think really needs to be done here that's going to turn a better knowledge of the climate and its uh, its impact to a response from society you've you've sort of touched on it already when you've discussed uh, the situation in many uh, countries in terms of uh, urban development but what do you think 
what still the challenges that need to be uh, addressed to achieve a better understanding of vulnerability and the use of that information effectively. Yeah, and I think Nina touched on this. So I, I think that it's the two Ds of downscaling and, and disaggregation. So downscaling in terms of producing higher resolution forecasts so they're actually useful um, within a city rather than just providing a forecast for a region. And then in terms of disaggregation, what I mean by that is both spatial um, but also about the types of people that are, are impacted by a hazard. Um, so... If we look at the sort of main disaster databases we have, such as EMDAT, we might have an idea that a thousand people are affected by flooding per year, but we, that doesn't really tell us what kinds of people um, and, and where those people are within a city. Um, and so this is some, some work we've been doing on trying to disaggregate um, disaster impact and disaster loss data by things like gender, income, livelihood, disability. And, and that's really challenging because it's, you know, it's often data that's, that's not really collected. Um, and colleagues of mine do things like uh, reconstructing impacts from, from hospital record data. Um, and I think that is, that's really going to be required to, to underpin our understanding of, of vulnerability um, to, to these disasters, both spatially and socially. Great. I'd, I'd like us to just move move on now to the practical actions that can be taken by decision makers and, of course, by the urban population itself to to address the risks that we've been that we've been talking about. Uh, Nina, perhaps I could ask you about the actions that that can be taken by decision makers to increase resilience and alleviate the risks in cities to to such extreme uh, hazards and events. I mean, and in particular, I suppose, from my perspective anyway, as a as a meteorologist, there's seems to me like there's a growing and perhaps even urgent need for accurate and timely early warning systems. So I wondered what, what your views on this this whole area of, of practical action is. Um, that's a really interesting question and um, it is relatively hard for me to answer. So the early warning systems are great. If we look into compound events, however, we need to understand them first. So compound events and the notion that different hazards act together and interact and amplify each other is actually quite new. So as I said earlier, we don't really understand them yet fully. So before we can build early warning systems and assess our forecast models, how well they do in predicting these events, we actually have to understand first what drives these events. The focus of the weather pod is cooperation between the public, private and academic sectors when it comes to applying weather and climate science to benefit business and society. We've talked about multi-hazard warning systems and responses and one of the key things to make them work is full engagement, a sort of whole of society approach. You've got to engage everybody and this is a huge challenge. Could I ask you about your views on uh, you know, how can we focus on building urban resilience with in climate change and the good examples that you know, of how to actually bring from your perspective, sort of from this, let's say, the climate science perspective, how to bring rather disparate group of people together to actually uh, address this? 
Yeah, I completely agree with Nina. And I think, you know, as a, a young postdoc, I found myself traveling out to these countries with these nice ideas for multi-hazard early warning systems and actually arriving to speak to, to local stakeholders that, that had completely different priorities. Um, so I think you know, that's where co-production of the original research ideas is, is so important and formulation of, of long-term partnerships with organisations that, that have a, a long-term remit within, within a location rather than a sort of three, five-year research project. Um, and really listening to stakeholders. Um, so whether that is your sort of you know, government or you know or local authorities that you're trying to approach or, or local communities and really ensuring they have a, a say in how we build the, the, the resilience um, in in their their um, local area how do you how do you get the local communities to fully engage i i mean to me it seems to be one of the biggest challenges is the uh, is this bridge between you know, a civic leader um representatives of civil society uh, maybe women's groups uh, and so on how do you connect them into the system so that they really feel part of it and not simply a recipient of information which they may or may not know how to use? I mean, how do they become a real stakeholder? Yeah, I agree. That's that's super challenging. And assuming that people do want to be involved and have the time and that where they won't be earning money if they're attending a workshop um, to, to offer their input to your project. Um, I think you know we've found the greatest success of working with very trusted uh, local partners so local organizations that have a, a long-term remit um and really ensuring that the information gets back to them so you know that we um report back the, the outcomes and there's an opportunity for them to to have a say in in the outputs that we've we've created um so it really is an ongoing kind of conversation um and and but i agree david is that is a challenge to do in a kind of systematic way it, it, it occurs to me in, the, in this conversation that, that both of you are, are are clearly very active in in the developing country situation uh, do, doing research on these compound hazards, etc. I'm, I'm interested in. Had, do you think that it it's is it becoming easier or more difficult to um, to get research funders to to support this kind of work? Um, obviously, there's inevitably, I suppose, in the developed world, there's a lot of urban uh, developments. There's a lot of work being done on, on that. But as you've described in this. Um, in this podcast there's a very different situation in the global south and different challenges to face i just wonder what's your perspective on whether we're giving enough um sort of research efforts both both um within your own sphere but also in the developed countries certainly from a uk perspective things have changed quite rapidly in the last year with government kind of prioritizing covid you know uk based covid response and, and withdrawing some of our funding for this international development work um, but you know these problems aren't going to go away and you know they're, they're a real opportunity for, for lots of different people to work together and that's what was fantastic about things like the global challenges research fund programs I think the only kind of thing I would I would hope for the future in terms of funding is, is more longer term funding for, for partnerships to, to really you know, work together over, say, a decade to, to really understand one another and, and solve these problems in the longer term. Nina, what's what's your perspective from from Australia about this uh, 
if you like, the landscape for doing this kind of very vital research? So in Australia, what we've seen, especially since the bushfires in 2019, 2020, is a growing interest in this kind of multi-hazard field of climate science. At the moment, it's more focused on Australia itself. So I personally haven't experienced um, a lot of focus on developing countries, mainly because we hardly understand what's happening within our own country. So um, it's definitely of interest, I think, for the global community in Australia should do more in it. Um, But so far, I've yeah, I've mainly focused on Australia itself or when I get funding, it's for Australia. So would you say, Nina, that that research in this area on, on compound um, hazards it is in a sense, is, is that best developed in terms of our thinking and our data and our knowledge on, the, on urban areas in, in developed countries? And the, the issue is that we need to increase the level of knowledge for developing countries is is that the situation we're in at the moment i wouldn't say it's better or more important the advantage that we have in the developed countries is that we normally have more access to more high quality data which is exactly what we need we need as much data as possible because we are going to perform statistical analysis and for statistics we need a large data pool Developing countries, uh, we often see that the data is either privately owned and um, not published, or it it simply isn't uh, doesn't exist. So, if there is data there, I think it would be just as useful to um, investigate what is happening in the developing world, like as what is happening in the uh, developed world. So there is basically no difference. It's just a lot easier to um, do this kind of research in the developed world because we are a lot more certain about the data we have, about what we can find out about the mechanisms because we have this data. Certainly in in the UK situation that I'm I'm aware of, there's been uh, quite a lot of effort to on development sciences, that is to say, research that that is on issues like the ones we've been talking about in the developing countries. But I'd be really interested, Faith, in in your experience of of how it is to work in developing countries on these sort of issues. How have you found it as as someone, you know, working from from the UK in developing projects um, and and working to develop solutions in in the developing world? Yeah, that's a great question, Alan. And um, yeah, so I my background is I'm a physical geographer. My PhD was computer-based modelling of landslides looking in Italy and California. And then I found myself on a sort of GCRF-type postdoc um, project in, in 2015, suddenly working in, in urban Africa and initially thinking that I'd be able to sort of transfer the methodologies that I developed to to towns and cities in Africa but as I quickly learned it's you know it's not as straightforward as just kind of cut and paste methods you know these these towns and cities are completely different to any type of urbanization we've we've seen um before really in terms of the, the large informal settlements um so I think and also working on these interdisciplinary projects I think it took me a really long time to learn 
how to speak to to social scientists. I think that's something that that Nina that kind of mentioned that things get lost in translation so easily, even within sort of disciplines within geography, let alone you know, working with completely different disciplines. Um, so very challenging, but but very rewarding in terms of just the number of, of problems that, that that need to be solved in these these towns and cities. And I think we, we have a real opportunity to, to create change. You're listening to WeatherPod with Alan Thorpe and David Rogers. I pick up on, on the one of the one point about uh, cooperation and it's to do with south south cooperation and particularly in the area of um, behavioral science because we if we think about the let's say climate sciences there's a there is a community there's a global community that's ex- exploring this whole domain and behavioral sciences are looking at very specific community responses to particular problems and what I've found is that there is a lot of um, commonality between different countries within the global south, but also between the south and the rest of the world, and particularly highlighted by by COVID as an example, and the and the reluctance in the in the developed many developed countries for the uptake of vaccines to many people's surprise, and you also see you see behavioural um, responses to emergency situations in Europe, in US, uh, and in many, many developing countries are very similar, in, particularly in urban environments, that even though they may be vastly different in terms of their overall footprint, they're at the level of poverty that exists in all societies is a major factor in determining the outcome of a particular situation. And I'll just be curious, and um, Faith in particular, and your, your views on how we can better use in the research environment, how we can better use the information that's being um, developed by colleagues uh, across the world um, to, to really improve our understanding everywhere. Yeah, and I, I agree, David, that you know, COVID has really kind of revealed the... Um, some of the similarities in the, you know, the level of um, inequality in, in the global north. Um, going to the, the, the kind of the question about methods and, and data, um, certainly I think there's a real opportunity in global south cities to harness sort of big data approaches. And this is something I'm speaking to colleagues about that, you know, you that Uber works there, uh, people on Facebook, Twitter, WhatsApp. We've got these huge streams of of digital data um, for quite a large proportion of the population, um, and certainly you know the younger parts of the population um, that that could be harnessed to to tell us more about the certainly the impact and the vulnerability to these hazards. Um, and you know we found during COVID that we were able to continue doing data collection through things like WhatsApp focus group discussions um, and smartphone surveys. Um, so I think there is real potential for for these sort of digital techniques to be used within within the urban global south, which is quite exciting. We're finding within certainly within Kibera and formal settlement um, in Nairobi where we work it's a challenge for sort of older people and some of the most marginalized, but we are finding quite high prevalence of access to phones, not necessarily smartphones. But so that's, that's where I think there is, there is real potential. So long as you acknowledge that you aren't reaching everyone. 
we didn't talk about yes, but we maybe we should just ask you a little bit about your your involvement with with that group because it's you know this these are a special series of uh, weather pods that we're, we're we've been recording uh, because of the connection with uh, yes, and I just wondered what is your experience with that and why you joined it and what's it doing for you. So it's, I came across, yes, um, at a conference. Um, I was in Canada. It was a WCRP organized conference in 2017, I think. And I went to an early career researcher workshop um, where we were talking about extreme events and um, data availability, particularly in developing nations, which I was really close to my heart and was really speaking to me and I was very interested in it and it's I got to know the organizers which were all well volunteers from the S community and I just thought it was amazing the work that they did and basically just because they were passionate about it so it's I joined them back then and the year after that I became the regional representative for Australia for the um, western south pacific and um, pretty soon after, I joined the executive committee that I'm still part of at the moment. So it's I'm basically one of the steering committee overlooking what um, YES is doing and um, yeah, seeing that we're heading in a direction that it supports our members and brings us forward and makes us seen in the wider community of earth system sciences. I don't think I can add much to, to what um, Nina said there, but just, you know, the, the value of these these networks to get involved in from, from early on in your career to, to practice the sort of interdisciplinary working and establish your own networks, I think are just so valuable. It's an interesting um, organisation in that, you know, we, we've, before we knew about YES, we normally think about, uh, you know, our learned societies, the Royal Meteorological Society, Australian Society, so on and so on. And and yet you kind of you come in with a different perspective altogether. And I'm curious, just to to f finish on this, is to what to understand how you perceive yes in the context of all the other um, institutions and arrangements that exist for the community. To me, I see yes more as something that is really exclusively for early career scientists. So we're all in the same, uh, we're all in the same position at the beginning of our careers. So it's, we're all trying to prove ourselves, if you want to call it that, still trying to find our way, our place in a very established field. So it's quite nice to have a cohort of people that is exactly in the same place as you it feels really nice and supportive so it's the bigger um, uh, organizations that you mentioned david they're great but it's they're mainly um, uh, the roles in there are mainly held by people that are already established whereas yes is something where we can leave our own mark where we can still put our own views and perspectives into it and influence something that is happening. Whereas these other 
organizations, it can be a little intimidating for an early career scientist to step up and say, hey, how about we do this? Or this is important to look at. Whereas if you bring it up and yes, then together as the whole community, you can step up and say, as an early career scientist, or we as early career scientists rather think this is an important topic to look at. So it, it gives us a voice, basically, even if you're normally a very shy person and very intimidated by people that are on a higher level than you are. Well, thank you very much, uh, both of you, for a really interesting uh, discussion. And I, I think uh, it's nothing left to, to say except thank you. Yes, uh, indeed. It's been a real pleasure to talk to you both about, about this area, which... Um, your enthusiasm and knowledge has been has been great to hear. So thanks very much. Thanks for having us. Thank you. It was really a lot of fun. Well, that concludes this episode of The Weather Pod. We hope you've enjoyed it. David and I will be back next month. And in the meantime, please give us your feedback via email to support at gweforum.org.